Welcome to today's podcast, Leveraging Investigative Techniques to Bring Down Medical Serial Killers. When our health fails us or accidents happen, we readily put our lives in the hands of trusted, trained, and credentialed doctors. But what if these doctors, who have taken an oath to heal the sick, have hidden intentions? When Michael Swango was a student at the Southern Illinois University School of Medicine in the early 1980s, he took a special interest in dying patients. In 1984, seven patients died after being cared for by Swango within one year, three of them over the course of just two days. Medical serial killers like Swango can go undetected for years, wielding their control over people at their most vulnerable and unguarded times. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence sits down with Bruce Sackman, renowned investigator specializing in tracking down medical serial killers and author of Behind the Murder Curtain which tells how Sackman and his team of investigators brought down four medical serial killers, including Michael Swango. In the wake of the Swango case, Sackman developed the Red Flags Protocol, which is now taught to investigators and forensic nurses throughout the world as a tool for stopping medical serial killers. Thanks for joining us. Uh, it truly is a privilege, honor, and just uh, to further inform our audience, I've had the pleasure of knowing Bruce and working with him for some 25 years. Uh, he's occupied various leadership positions, uh, did a terrific job as one of the senior inspector generals for the Veterans Administration Hospital System, and obviously has had a uh, extraordinary career uh, in the private sector. Uh, counseling and working closely with some of the leading uh, health and hospital companies. In any event, Bruce, the obvious question is, what led you to write this book? And uh, maybe you can take us through through the history of what you learned in the course of your research. Sure, and thank you very much for inviting me on this podcast, David. I appreciate it. So what happened was that... um, the case began in a very interesting way. I was uh, sitting at my desk when all of a sudden the phone call came that sort of changed my life. As you know, David, my history was really white-collar crime, and uh, I had investigated those cases just about my entire career until one day I get a call from the chief of psychiatry at the Northport VA Medical Center, And she says, Bruce, you're not going to believe this, but we have a doctor working here. And there's a news story that he actually spent time in prison uh, for poisoning his coworkers. And after that, there was a bit of silence on the phone because I wanted to make sure I heard her right. I said, wait, could you say that again? Are you saying that we actually have a physician at one of our hospitals who's treating patients right now as we speak, who actually spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers, that seems impossible to me. But it was actually true. Because credentialing of physicians back then was not the way it is today. You have to remember this is also pre-internet. And then I learned the story of Dr. Michael Swango. Dr. Michael Swango was at the VA in Northport treating patients, and after I heard this story, I hopped in the car with one of my coworkers. I said, we have to go chat with this fellow. And all of a sudden, he comes in the room, and I'll tell you something. He was a handsome, charming, 
uh, just incredibly well-spoken and very calm individual. And I, I approached him with this, and he says, no, you know, Bruce, this is all a big mistake. It's an all an error. I guess today we would actually call it, uh, you know, phony news or whatever. He says it's absolutely not true. He says, I'm a good doctor. I'm, a, I'm an honest doctor. And to tell you the truth, he was so charming that if I didn't know better, I'd actually want to introduce him to my own daughter. I mean, he was a handsome, charming ex-Marine. And as I started to continue asking him, you know, the questions, I could see it was uh, getting to him. It was starting to bother him. And I asked him for permission to search his room, and he wouldn't let me search it. And then I called the U.S. attorney at the time in the Eastern District in New York, and she said, well, Bruce, you know, we don't have any evidence that he harmed anybody out in Northport, so we don't really have enough probable cause for a search warrant. And the next thing you know, Swango left. He left the country. He went to Africa. And during this time, we had an opportunity to learn all about Swango. And it actually began when he was in Southern Illinois University Medical School, where his fellow students referred to him as Double O Swango, licensed to kill. And this is when he's in medical school. See, it seems that every time he would visit a patient, um, there was a high probability that that patient uh, might expire unexpectedly. So a number of students actually wrote a letter to the dean, and they said, you know, dean, we don't think uh, Swango here should be a physician. And the dean said, Hey, I'm the dean. You're the students. I don't care what you think. I think maybe he just needs a little bit more education, a little bit more training, and we'll make him a physician. And that's exactly what happened. So he gets an internship at Ohio State University Medical Center. And Ohio State Medical, Medical University Medical Center, uh, there was a young gymnast, a student. Her name was Cynthia McGee. Cynthia McGee had been in a car accident with another student. She was improving until she gets a visit from Dr. Michael Swango. Next thing you know, she dies unexpectedly. So what happens? The, the student that hit her in the car, he gets charged with vehicular homicide, but he didn't kill Cynthia McGee. Swango killed Cynthia McGee. Well, there was so much suspicion about him, but there was no evidence that he actually harmed anybody. So he leaves Ohio State University, and then he becomes a uh, an EMT. And one day he invites his fellow EMTs in for coffee and donuts, and they all get sick. And he starts calling them up, and he wants to know all the details of their illness, and they start to suspect something. So the police there do an outstanding job. They go to his house. They find all kinds of books on poison and arsenic in particular, and it turns out that he was sprinkling arsenic on the donuts of his co-workers. So he goes to jail for five years for poisoning his co-workers. Now, you would think that it would be absolutely impossible for someone to be incarcerated for five years for poisoning their co-workers and come out and become a doctor. You would think that. Well, believe it or not, he actually becomes a doctor again. And the way he did this is he forged some documents, he did a slight name change, and he even created a document to show 
that his civil rights had been restored by the governor because he's telling everyone the reason why he was in jail is, you know, he's a tough ex-Marine and he got in a barroom brawl and nobody really checked it out. And the next thing you know, the guy is a physician. He's actually a physician again, and he's a physician out west at um, – uh, where is he again now? Let me see. He's out west in, uh, well, in, in Sioux Falls. I'm sorry, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, he's actually doing pretty well. And uh, he meets a nurse who happens to be a VA nurse. And uh, they're engaged and everything's going fine. And then he decides to reinstate membership in the AMA. And the AMA does some research, and they find out about his background. And the next thing you know, all the media and the newspapers in Sioux Falls starts talking about Swango. Well, this is really upsetting to his fiance. His fiance goes home to mom and dad. Uh, she's very upset. One day she goes to the park. She takes out a gun, and she blows her brains out. Well, you can't blame Swango for that, can you? Well, actually, you can, because even though the body was cremated, the family kept a lock of her hair, and it was loaded with arsenic. So Swango had actually been poisoning his own fiance. Well, a little time later, he winds up in my neighborhood at the Northport VA Medical Center. He actually uh, was interviewed by uh, Stony Brook, and he was going for a residency, and guess what? in psychiatry. So that means he had to go in front of a board of trained psychiatrists and convince them that he should be on the residency program, which he did. And no one did the due diligence that they would do nowadays. And the next thing you know, he's at the VA. And that's where I met him. So he goes to Africa after my interview. And in Africa, he kills women and children and pregnant women. Really, anybody and everybody was a target of opportunity for this guy. And now he wants to go on to Saudi Arabia, but he had to turn to the United States because he had to get his passport renewed. And when he goes to the United States, we arrested him not for murdering anybody at the VA because we didn't have the evidence of that. But I would say for what's every federal agent's favorite crime, a 1001 false statements to the government because he lied on his application to government about his time in jail. So that gave us a three-year three window of opportunity while he was in prison to do the investigation. Now, I had never done a homicide investigation before. This was brand new to me. So my boss says, Bruce, I'm going to introduce you to somebody who's going to tutor you. And he introduced me to Dr. Michael Bodden, you know, probably the world's foremost a forensic toxicologist, and I went up to the state police and I said, Dr. Bodden, you know, I need help on this. I've never done a case like this before. And he said, don't worry, Bruce. I'm going to help you. I'm going to tutor you, and I'm going to teach the VA how to do these kind of cases. Well, where do, how do we begin? How do we start? Well, this is the first thing we have to do. We're going to assemble a team of medical experts. We're going to have physicians. We're going to have forensic toxicologists. You're going to have me, of course, Dr. Michael Bonin. And what we have to do is we have to review the medical records of all the patients that were at Northport at the time that Dr. Michael Swangle was there. 
and try to determine if any of them died unexpectedly. You know, natural death, I think, you know, God forbid you had a relative or somebody in the hospital and you know that their time is short and the staff knows their time is short, so death is not unexpected. We're going to look for cases where death was unexpected. And the way Dr. Bonin described natural death to me, he says, Bruce, it's like shedding off a fan and the blades very slowly turn around. But when these people died, it's like shedding off a light bulb. They were bright one minute and dark the next. So what we did, we pulled up all these medical records, and I had this team of forensic nurses and investigators and everyone we could, and we kind of narrowed it down to about three or four patients that we thought died unexpectedly, and we could not find a natural cause of death for them, in spite of what it said in the medical records. So the next step is we would have to exhume the bodies because all these people were buried. So now imagine getting a visit one day from two VAOIG agents who ring your doorbell and say, you know, excuse me, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, but we think maybe, you know, your dad had had died unexpectedly and there were reasons that we need to have your permission to pull his body up from the grave and take a look at it. Imagine getting a visit like that. Well, that's the kind of visit these people got, and they were all very nice and very understanding, but plus we had court orders. So the first time in my life, I find myself at a cemetery with a backhoe, and we're digging up. I mean, I'm a white-collar crime investigator, right? and we're digging up the gravesite, pulling the casket up from the ground. Next thing you know, Dr. Michael Bonin, he jumps into where the gravesite is. I said, what is he doing? And he's taking soil samples. I said, what are you doing, Doc? He says, well, you see, Bruce, this could be arsenic in the soil. And if we find arsenic in the body, they're going to claim that it was arsenic that went into the body from the soil and not from poisoning. Then I find myself at the medical examiner's office in Suffolk County in the, in the morgue. And next thing you know, we're cutting open bodies, something I had never, ever done before. And it's a bit of a cultural experience, a cultural shock to go through it. And then Michael Bond's taking out a heart, and he says, Bruce, you see the heart here? Does anything look wrong to you? I said, what do I know? I said, I don't know. And then he's explaining to me. So I'm getting this incredible education while this whole investigation is going on. Well, anyway, we narrowed it down to three people that we felt, you know, three veterans that we felt died as a result of poisoning. And we thought that their deaths were consistent with two types of poisoning, epinephrine, which is adrenaline, and succinylcholine, which is a paralytic, which they give you if they want to intubate you or put a tube down you. So now it's time for Swango to get out of jail. You know, he's there three years on false statements. It's time to get out, and he thinks he's just going to walk free. And we say, not so fast, Dr. Swango, not so fast, okay? And he was indicted for the three counts of murder. And one of the things, you know, we said to him, we said, look, Doc, if we go to trial, and even if we lose, um, the United States recently signed an extradition treaty with Zimbabwe. So we'll just put you on the plane and drop you off on the tarmac in Zimbabwe. And good luck over there. Well, that was a great incentive for him to plead guilty. And he pled guilty to murdering... uh, three of our nation's heroes at the Northport VA Medical Center. And then it was time for sentencing. 
in the Eastern District, and he goes in front of the judge, and he stands up there like an ex-Marine, you know, at attention, and he tells the judge exactly how he poisoned people. And, you know, he poisoned so many people, even if he wants to cooperate, he can't even remember how many they were or who they were. And he explains to the judge what epinephrine was, and he explains to the judge what succinylcholine was. And then the judge sentences him to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. And then something I had never heard before or since in a courtroom. And the judge says, and Dr. Swango, by the way, if Congress should change the law and parole could be granted, your parole is denied in advance. <laughs> I said, wow, I had never heard that, anything like that before. But that was incredible. So after Dr. Michael Swango, the next thing you know, all of a sudden, I've become the VAOIG expert on suspicious deaths because I was maybe the only OIG agent ever to do a, a, an investigation like this. And almost at the same time, we discover a nurse in Massachusetts, her name is Kristen Gilbert, who murdered about 35 people using epinephrine. She went to trial and she was found guilty. Then there was a nurse, Williams, in Columbia, Missouri, who killed about 60 people. And then also in the book, we talk about a doctor up in Albany who was involved in research. And he couldn't find a sufficient number of patients to put into his research study. So what he did is, is he altered the medical records of other patients who were close to making the study but not didn't quite meet what they call the inclusion-exclusion criteria to get in the study. So he altered their medical records to put them in the study, gave them investigational drugs, and they died, and he was prosecuted as well. So that's sort of an overview of some of the stories that we have in the, in the book Behind the Murder Curtain. So, Bruce, a couple things that I'd like to unpack with you. Uh, let's first get to the overarching messages of why individuals, professionals who are credentialed, whether they're doctors or nurses, and uh, as your book points out, you know, this is, uh, there's a certain amount of pattern recognition around this, but why they do it and the types of personalities that tend to sort of think about these types of crimes and what their objectives are. Oh, absolutely. And I could tell you um, what I've been told um, by the forensic psychiatrist one of the most popular motives for these people is something called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And what that is an example of that is that a, a mother might intentionally harm her child and bring her child into the emergency room to show the staff, oh, she's such a caring mother. You know, she's so concerned about the child. I'm here to protect my child when, in fact, she actually harmed the child to begin with. And this is called Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Well, around the world, and this is certainly the case with Kristen Gilbert and, and other nurses and some doctors, um, there's a, a term we use, uh, we refer to them as code junkies. They actually crave the excitement of a code. And what happens is that, um, you know, the staff, the bells and whistles go off, the staff comes running in. As a matter of fact, in the case with Kristen Gilbert, the staff used to say, you know, if I ever coded, I would want Kristen Gilbert to be there. You know, she takes charge. She starts barking orders at the young interns who are scared out of their mind. She's incredible. 
And if you look in their evaluation, it's very interesting because you see that as routine nurses, their evaluations are okay, but when it comes to codes, oh, they're outstanding. Well, of course, if you caused the code to begin with, you know, then you might have an idea of what went on. And if the patient lives, they live. If they die, they die. You know, Nurse Williams in Columbia, Missouri, um, he was the same way. Just loved the excitement of a code. And uh, I guess it broke up maybe the boredom for some people, but they really were very excited about it. With Nurse Gilbert, we had an interesting policy. I don't think it exists anymore. But at this hospital in Massachusetts, when a code was called, not only would the nurses come running in, but the requirement was for a VA police officer to be at the code as well. Now, this VA police officer happened to be Kristen Gilbert's boyfriend. So she turned this experience into almost a social event where the two of them would be grabbing each other and, uh, you know, touching each other, all while this poor veteran is on the table in a code. And the, the excitement of the code for her and for many nurses and doctors around the world has really proven to be, in my experience, maybe the number one reason. Now, that wasn't necessarily true with Swango. I think Swango just craved the power of life and death over individuals, you know. And what Swango used to do is he'd go in a room, administer whatever he administered, and sit there and watch the patient die. And then what he would do is what he would call up the next of kin and sit and tell them in great detail about how the patient's last half hour of his life was, all the suffering he had, the pain he had, because he would enjoy reliving the experience again when he would actually speak to the family. Incredible. Imagine getting a call like that. Just incredible. And many of these people, of course, were totally shocked. They would say, what are you talking about? We just visited Dad last week. He seemed like he was getting better now. Now you're telling me he died? And Swango would love that. He would love that phone. So he actually, I think, really just craved the power of life and death over an individual. You know, some people, there's a famous medical serial killer. Uh, his name is Donald Harvey. And he was at the VA and, and the outside. And uh, they asked him about this. And he says, well, you know, he says, after I killed... The first 18 patients, excuse me, yeah, the first 18 patients, and nobody even questioned it. Then he said, you know what? I started to believe I was ordained by God himself to do this because I'm killing patients, and nobody, nobody is even questioning me about it. And then lastly, we have, on rare occasions, uh, eliminating just demanding and or, or unruly patients who keep pressing the button and pressing the button. And there's a famous nurse in Italy. Her name is Gabrielle. And the staff used to complain, oh, that Mr. Jones, he's always pushing the button. And she said, don't worry, I would take care of him. And she would take care of him. In fact, what she would also do is take a selfie of herself and the patient after she murdered the patient. Of course, it continued the excitement of the experience with her. It's a very unusual group of people because, look, I mean, the overall majority of healthcare professionals are honest, hardworking, dedicated people who actually perform miracles every day. I mean, I see it here at the hospital I work. 
So if you're working in an environment where people are doing just wonderful things to help other people, it's pretty hard to fathom the idea that one of your coworkers is intentionally killing somebody. That's a pretty tough concept to to understand. You know, and even management is going to have a hell of a tough time if you make an allegation to them about that. I mean, it's very, very unbelievable. And I could see why people are going to not believe it because they're working in an environment where people have taken an oath to save lives, you know, not not to take lives. Yeah, you put you put forward, Bruce, a number of um, quote psychological insights about the behavioral disorders that drives people to do these things, and it ranges from people who are sort of excitement junkies who may enjoy creating the moment where they can be proclaimed a hero and you know save someone in time, to the enjoyment of having power over life and death, and and actually you know enjoying in a psychopathic way, the um, the termination of life, and then the recital to people of, you know, the the final hour hours that somebody lived. And, um, you know, clearly, you know, those types of disorders, I'll leave it to the psychiatrists and forensic psychologists, will chronicle this behavior and doesn't, you know, it's not confined to hospitals and professionals. But you're also underscoring, I think, and, and it's certainly part of the value of your book, is what I'll refer to as the institutional failure to recognize certain things. And it begins, your story begins with medical students who had given a nickname because they were seeing some things. And certainly hospitals, in particular with uh, the advantages of data that they keep internally here and oversight, um, may have seen things, at least in hindsight, they, they did see things around what was happening to, you know, certain, you know, patients. And I guess, you know, the question here is, from a cultural standpoint, have things changed inside medical facilities where they're at least aware that this can occur? And when individuals who otherwise are not expected to either go into a code situation or to pass away, begin to pass away, do they begin to think about this as a possibility? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. And I would have to say, in my experience, it sort of varies from institution to institution. You know, I'm not aware of this sort of training, although I am aware of a wonderful, relatively new, when I say relatively new, maybe 20 years profession that has surfaced called forensic nurses. And these are nurses that are trained in both nursing and forensics. And they have the ability and the skills to look at things like this and come out with a determination. You know, almost every one of these cases starts the same way. It starts with statistics. It starts, let's say, every time Nurse Bruce is on duty, the death rate goes up. Every time Nurse Bruce takes a vacation, the death rate goes down. And that's what I've seen on many of my cases. But that alone is not enough to prosecute someone. You know, that's just enough to get people to start taking a look. But the problem is with that, how many people have to die until you start taking a look? You know, that's why um, the nurse Donald Harvey said, well, after I killed the first 18 and nobody questioned it. Look, in a hospital, you know, death is a common everyday occurrence. 
a death, a death in a hospital or a nursing home, no one's going to really think twice, especially in the ICU. I mean, this is very, very common. So unfortunately, what has to happen is that there has to be a number of deaths, usually, until someone actually makes an allegation. And let me tell you something that takes a lot of courage to come forward. Because the nurses and doctors that have come forward uh, have not usually fared well. Many of them uh, received threats from their coworkers and, and supervisors not to bring these issues forward. Uh, the nurses who brought the uh, Nurse Gilbert case forward, um, they were harassed even after she was convicted at trial. People say, look at all the negative publicity you brought to our hospital. Couldn't we have just moved her on or fired her? Why did you have to go to the IG? Why did you have to start all of this? You know, there's a famous nurse in New Jersey. His name is Nurse Cohen. And he went from hospital to hospital to hospital. And the first hospital never said anything to the second hospital. They never said anything to the third hospital, et cetera, et cetera. And meanwhile, he left a trail of deaths all over. And that's why my medical serial killers have so many more deaths than you might say a traditional serial killer. Traditional serial killer, you know, what, eight to ten people? Kind of amateurs compared to medical serial killers. I mean, Swango, we estimate 60 people in the United States, an equivalent number overseas. Gilbert was somewhere between 30 and 40. Williams, about 60. I mean, these are the kind of numbers. There was recently a, a case in Germany, and I'm looking at the headline, and it said, German nurse charged with 97 more murders at hospitals. 97 more murders? So how many people did he have to kill first for them now to look at 97 more murders? And recently there was a case in Canada, a case in Japan. These cases surface all over the world, and they're very, very similar in many respects, but each one has a unique twist to it. But one thing that's not unique, and that's the the great numbers, the great numbers of deaths that are associated with these people. Imagine a headline that says charged with 97 more murders. This is recent. This is not history. I mean, this is recent, like two years old. Name is Niels Hogel. 97 more murders. Incredible. Just incredible. So what you're suggesting um, through your research and through your book is, while this may be an unusual phenomenon. It is not a phenomenon without precedent, and it's not an issue that's likely to go away. It's going to continue. And I can't help but not, you know, with your point, Bruce, about the courage it takes to raise your hand, to raise the questions, the type of blowback that people get. There are clearly parallels to other issues and scandals that have occurred, and whether it's the scandal involving Olympic teams, you know, in particular medical examiners and or it's, you know, in the, on the sports field in terms of certain coaches. There seems to be an overarching message from your book is that we need to understand range of human behavior that can occur where trust is abused, where even the, the most professionally credentialed individual will commit crimes and misbehave, that when there is not full transparency and where obviously, you know, issues of institutional reputation can hang in the balance, there needs to be a mechanism whereby people who, when they see something, can say something and whereby they can report something 
um, not in a malicious way, but in a professional way and in a way where people will look at this. And I, I'm, I'm going to go back to the beginning of your narrative where the students go to the dean and the dean reminds the students, I'm the dean, you're the students. Thank you very much. Stay in your lane. Exactly. And you know, uh, there's a, there was a famous article in the New York Times a couple of years ago. It's entitled, Nurses Fired for Alleging Misconduct Settled Their Suit. It's an incredible story. It's a story about two nurses in a small hospital in Texas. Right? And what happens is these two nurses, long-time nurses, they were actually the entire compliance department. And they feel that this doctor is incompetent and he's harming patients. So they go to the board of the hospital and they say, board, this, this is what we think of this doctor and why we think about it. And the board's response is, hey, do you know how hard it is to find doctors out here in the oil basin of Texas? You know, we have to go all the way to the Philippines. And in fact, we're going past the Philippines now. We're going to Korea, and if we make friends with North Korea, we'll probably take some of their doctors. We can't find doctors here. So you know what, nurses? Thank you very much, and just go back to your room. And they say, well, what do we do now? We went to the management, and the management rejected us. So what they did is they sent an anonymous letter to the state officials laying out their allegations about the doctor. This gets back to the doctor. And the doctor calls up the local sheriff, who happens to be one of his patients, and he says, Sheriff, says I think these women are out to get me. They're telling lies, and I think they violated the law by going to the state anonymously. So what does the sheriff do? He gets a search warrant for these two nurses' computers. He goes into the computers, and he finds that, yes, they were the ones who sent the anonymous letter to the state, and he has them indicted, I am not kidding, indicted for misuse of official information. These two nurses are fired, arrested. Now they're facing criminal investigation, in essence, for being whistleblowers. So all the whistleblowers and all the whistleblower organizations around the world are really outraged by this. Then it's time for trial. The jury's out for about 20 minutes. They come back and they say, are you kidding me? These nurses deserve a medal for what they did, not to be criminally prosecuted. And they sued the hospital and won. But what kind of message is this for other nurses, for other professionals who want to go forward? You know, they're going to say, holy cow, did you hear about those two nurses in Texas? They were actually arrested for going to the state. Oh, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to come forward now. I'm really afraid of this. It's a terrible case. Who needs verdict and a trial to be vindicated? And, you know, I guarantee before that jury trial, there were offers of settlement and and a lot of pressures to capitulate. There's a famous uh, quote from uh, former Labor Secretary Donovan many years ago who was put on trial for a variety of corruption uh, allegations, uh, principally around minority um, owned businesses and the program and stuff. And after he was um, acquitted, his famous line was, where do I go to get back my reputation? Mm-hmm. So, Bruce, um, the book is a wonderful read, and without question, somebody from Hollywood is going to want to make a movie. <laughs> but I think it's it's real value from an investigative standpoint. 
from an institutional risk management standpoint and its relevancy to some of the headline issues that you're reading about today around um, criminal activity and uh, the types of things that can go on for not, you know, months or even years, not even for decades, but for generations, and nobody calls it out. Uh, the message of your book is the importance of institutions having mechanisms where, whereby when misconduct and criminal activity is potentially occurring and people have concerns and suspicions, that the mechanisms are in place to be able to raise these things and to do it without any kind of backlash, without, you know, punitive measures being applied to the person who is raising their hand. And it's important to recognize that, you know, what Bruce has highlighted in the book, et cetera, is not, it may be unusual, but it's certainly not unique in the annals and certainly not something that has been put to rest. So I wanted to thank you for that, Bruce. Um, you're welcome. The other thing that you highlight is the extraordinary investigative effort that has to often be undertaken to get to the bottom of things. And sometimes it's forensics uh, with, you know, people like Dr. Bodden and others. Sometimes it's the ability to talk to other people. Sometimes it's digging in the records. Sometimes it's a skillful interview. And obviously your tip-off came after you sort of pressed on certain points. Uh, but there is a fair amount of institutional effort that has to be applied once these issues are raised. And the third thing I would just tend to underscore, which I think is exceptionally valuable uh, in the book, is that if people are not connecting the dots and doing the appropriate background research and understanding somebody's profile and history. You can also miss important clues. As Bruce's book highlights everything from the narrative in terms of why somebody was in jail to sort of what their prior work history was to, you know, their personal narratives about who they are and where they came from, et cetera. So, again, uh, people will read this in part because they'll have an interest in the subject and because it's a great read, you know, there's some very, very fundamental risk management lessons that are underscored and highlighted. And that is the public service of, uh, of what you've done here, Bruce, in, in writing this up. Well, thank you very much, David. Um, I appreciate those kind words. And um, I think people will learn a lot from the book. Um, the responses that I've gotten, it's a real eye-opener for a number of people. And um, they they heard about the cases individually, you know, but collectively, they've never really put it all together and started to realize that the problem like this exists. Um, just to comment on one of the things you said about the investigations, more often than not, when an investigation comes, they're not going to get the kind of – the investigators are not going to get the kind of cooperation they hope from from management. Because what hospital wants to be known as the home of a serial killer? So uh, more often than not, when allegations are brought by staff to uh, hospital management, they'll do their own internal investigation using their own staff, their own physicians, and they will come out with an explanation that always sounds like this. The person d uh, died as a result of one or more of their natural disease processes. And, you know, when I was in the VA and I looked at medical records for the first time and we had many older patients, 
gee, I didn't know you could still be alive and have all of this wrong with you, and now we're going to prove that you were actually murdered? And then when law enforcement shows up, they'll hear something like this. Well, thank you very much, officer, for your concern. I want to tell you what we did. We appointed an internal board of our very best medical experts. They all came to the conclusion that these patients died as a result of one or more of their natural disease processes. Um, if you look at the death certificate signed by our doctors, you'll see that uh, it was almost always, it says myocardial infarction or some sort of heart-related ailment. On occasion, we even did autopsies, and that's the conclusion we came to. Now, if you want to challenge that, officer, well, go right ahead and challenge it. But how many police departments have the resources to challenge a statement like that? It would be very easy to just kind of walk away, and that happens more often than not. So a very good point, and if I can just, again, draw some analogs uh, to other headlines, whether it's, you know, allegations of fraud or corruption inside major companies or agencies to, you know, the recent Olympic Committee scandals involving sexual abuse. And uh, we may be at a, a bit of a moment where there is a bit of an epiphany. Leaders of organizations we're seeing it in terms of various hearings that are conducted, and we're seeing it in terms of long and lasting reputational damage. So as horrible as it is to uh, think about your institutions having employed someone who could have been responsive, responsible in these heinous crimes, far worse to ignore, far worse to cover up, far worse to allow you know, additional acts to continue. There is only so much that the management team of a, any company or agency can know. Uh, the executives of those institutions, the boards of those institutions, if they don't have the ability to have the situational awareness from the people who are on day-to-day -day basis are part of the operations, they will ultimately, ultimately deprive themselves of a very, very important tool and hold the companies or agencies or enterprises at risk. Uh, for exposures that they could have and should have known about. So, Bruce, thank you uh, very much for the public service in writing that book. Um, and uh, we'll highlight this. And more to come as we have. Uh, we have a couple events coming up in which uh, we're going to be inviting you to be a participant because, as I said, the lessons of this particular book uh, transcend uh, what I'll refer to the sensationalism of the underlying crimes. Well, thank you again, David. I'm always looking forward to lecturing on this topic. You know, I've lectured pretty much all over the world now. I was in you know, I was in Dubai uh, last year, and I tell you, the response I got is sort of universal. People are very, very interested in it. They find it to be an eye opener and something they really didn't think about. They didn't really put it together. So, I'm very anxious to move forward on that. That's great. And then as a final, truly final comment, uh, Bruce always walked into my office at the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, notwithstanding being an IG. He's always clad in a black leather jacket, so I'm sure he's lecturing, he's lecturing in, uh, in, in similar garb. Anyway, thank you again, Bruce. You're welcome, David. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>
If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, the daily risk book email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.